Tracy Sable tonight on EWTN News Nightly off the ballot. A state Supreme Court takes the GOP primary election to a new level of concern. We have a report and reaction. Message received and discarded. When the U.S. announced it was leading an international maritime task force to protect ships in the Red Sea, the Houthis vowed to keep attacking them. We have analysis. End to the blockade. The Senate confirms top-ranking military officers after Senator Tuberville releases his hold on military nominations. What this means for the pro-life movement. And memories of Christmas. D.C. locals share their favorite moments from the holidays, old and new. These stories add more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Dominic of Silos. Our top story tonight, reaction is pouring in today following a historic decision by the Colorado Supreme Court to take former President Donald Trump off the state's primary ballot. The unprecedented decision disqualifies Trump from holding the presidency under the Constitution's so-called insurrection clause. Section 3 of the Civil War era 14th Amendment prohibits anyone who has previously taken an oath of office from holding public office if they, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States. The former president has not been charged explicitly with insurrection or rebellion in any of his criminal cases. Trump is expected to appeal the decision, likely setting up a showdown in the United States Supreme Court. And while Trump may be the frontrunner in the Republican primary election right now, even his GOP rivals criticize the ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court. I do not believe Donald Trump should be prevented from being president of the United States by any court. I think he should be prevented from being president of the United States by the voters of this country. There was no trial on any of this. They basically just said, what, you can't be on the ballot? Could we just say that Biden can't be on the ballot because he let in 8 million illegals uh, into the country and violated the Constitution, which he has? I pledge to withdraw from the Colorado GOP primary ballot unless and until Tr Trump's name is restored. And I demand that Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie and Nikki Haley do the same thing, or else these Republicans are simply complicit. Here with more on the decision out of the Centennial State and how it could influence the 2024 election is John Malcolm, senior legal, the legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a constitutional law expert. John, great to be with you today. We appreciate it. So talk to us about how the Colorado court arrived at this decision. As you know, former President Trump has not been convicted of anything related to January 6th. Yeah, so there are seven justices on the Colorado Supreme Court. They were all appointed by Democratic governors, by the way. Four of the justices, in an unsigned opinion, per curiam, so we don't know which justice wrote it, uh, decided that Donald Trump did, in fact, engage in an insurrection uh, through his conduct leading up to and including what happened on January 6, 2021, and that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies to him. It basically says if you were formerly a federal official and you took an oath to defend the Constitution and then you engage in an insurrection, you are disqualified from holding federal office. They said that uh, this was a self-executing provision. It didn't require any additional action by Congress uh, to implement it. The Colorado's election code uh, provided a procedure 
uh, that uh, allowed for this kind of a determination and that Donald Trump met it. And that uh, there was also an argument that Donald Trump made, I think it's a pretty good one actually, that the insurrection clause was not meant to apply to a president or vice president. It was meant to apply to appointed officials and certain designated elected officials like senators and, and congressmen who were specifically mentioned in that provision, but not to the president or vice president. The court rejected all of that. Three of the justices on the Colorado Supreme Court dissented from that ruling. They each wrote a separate dissent. Two of them said the Colorado's procedures are just woefully deficient to make a determination as complex and fact-intensive as this, and that he was deprived of due process through this procedure. The third justice not only said that, but also said that this disqualification provision, the insurrection clause, is not self-executing. It requires an act of Congress. No such act of Congress exists. The closest analogy is the criminal law uh, provision that you just cited uh, that would you know, criminalize anyone who engages in an insurrection, but that Donald Trump has not been convicted or even charged with violating that statute. So, John, despite this ruling, I mean, is it possible he could remain on the ballot in Colorado? Well, not at the moment. Uh, so the court stayed its ruling until, a, I forget, it's either January 4th or 5th to allow for an appeal. Donald Trump certainly will appeal. Uh, and they said that, look, if he does appeal, then our order will be stayed until we get some further direction from the Supreme Court, either denying the appeal or accepting the appeal, whatever the Supreme Court says. There are cases like this pending in, in at least 13 other states. Today, the California lieutenant governor sent a letter to the secretary of state urging the secretary to consider all legal arguments to try to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot in California. I think it's highly likely that the Supreme Court of the United States will hear this case, even though they probably don't want to. So this is probably not the last word that we've heard on this subject. John, has this ever happened before in the history of the United States? Certainly not. <laughs> so this provision uh, was enacted again as part of the 14th Amendment because you had a lot of former federal officials, judges, you know, congressmen uh, who sided with the South during the Civil War and then after the war wanted to return to their former positions. In fact, uh, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, tried to become a senator. So this provision was put in place to try to keep them from doing that, although even eventually there's a provision that says Congress can waive this disqualification clause by a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress, and ultimately they decided to do that for all of the former people who had fought on uh, behalf of the Confederacy. But no, nothing like this has happened. Actually, something like this did happen recently to a local uh, elected official in New Mexico uh, who was in the Capitol on January 6th. There was an effort made to disqualify him from holding office, and the judge ruled against him. That case was not appealed. But that's that's the only instance that I know of where this has ever happened. Well, this is uh, going to be definitely something to watch, and we will be watching it. John, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate your time, as always. God bless. My, my pleasure. Good to be with you. Uh, President Joe Biden reacts to former President Trump being booted off the ballot in Colorado. One reporter asked him if Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. 
Tracy, traveling to Milwaukee to give a speech on Bidenomics, President Joe Biden told that reporter it's self-evident that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist and tried to overturn the 2020 election. Here's how the brief interaction near Air Force One played out. At first, President Joe Biden did not want to comment on the Colorado case involving Donald Trump. But then he approached reporters with one of them asking... Well, I think you're self-evident. You saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. And no question about it. None. Zero. And uh, he seems to be doubling down on about everything. The president was also asked about the hostages being held by Hamas and whether he's expecting a hostage deal anytime soon. I, I don't, there's no expectation at this point. But we are pushing well, good morning, everyone. And at the U.S. State Department today, President Biden's top diplomat told reporters... On the um, question of hostages and a pause, uh, this is something we'd very much uh, like to see happen. As you know, we were instrumental in getting the first humanitarian pause that facilitated the release of 110 hostages. More than 100 captives are still being held by Hamas and other groups. Americans are among them. Israel has been very clear, uh, including as recently as today, uh, that it would welcome returning to uh, a pause in the further release of hostages. The problem was and ha has been and remains Hamas. Blinken also told families of Americans being wrongfully detained anywhere in the world, do not give up hope. We're with you. The president is with you. And he's working for you every single day to bring your loved ones home. Also tonight, Hamas's top leader is in Cairo for talks on the war in Gaza. And whether a ceasefire happens and a hostage deal gets done, of course, remains to be seen. Israel is vowing to press ahead with its war against the terror group that invaded southern Israel in early October, killing 1,200 people and taking hundreds hostage. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. Well, as the war rages on, a grim milestone. The Hamas-run health ministry reports more than 20,000 people have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. In the North, videos published Wednesday show heavy airstrikes in Jabala area of northern Gaza. At least 46 people have been killed in the area, and it is estimated that dozens are still under rubble. In the southern part of the territory, thick smoke could be seen near a hospital in Rafah. Israeli airstrikes are bombarding the area as the death toll rises. Israel is coming under mounting pressure to halt or scale back its attacks. But just today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the war will not end until Hamas is eliminated. Well, the United States and Venezuela have agreed to a prisoner swap. A close ally of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro has been released. In exchange, the United States received 10 Americans who had been imprisoned in the socialist nation. It represents a major move by the White House to improve relations with the oil-producing country. President Maduro has committed to holding free and fair elections next year. President Biden reacted to the news. An aircraft on their way home to the United States. And we've secured the release of every American being held in Venezuela on their way home. Well, the U.S. Senate has confirmed 11 top-ranking military officers. This comes after Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville released his year-long blockade of promotions in protest of the Department of Defense's abortion policy. Democrats say the confirmations are long overdue. These 11 
flag officers have now been approved, joining the rest of their colleagues who we approved a few weeks ago. That's good news. The confirmations passed without debate, officially ending the Alabama Republicans' blockade. The Senate moved quickly, in part, to wrap up its work before a holiday recess. Critics say Senator Tuberville's stance threatened national security. Pro-lifers applauded the Alabama Republican, who said that he was assured by many military leaders that readiness was not being affected. Well, during the pandemic, thousands of military service members were forced from the ranks for refusing to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. And now Republican lawmakers tell EWTN News Nightly they are renewing calls for the Defense Department to reinstate the discharged service members, calling it a matter of fairness and readiness. 8,000 military men and women uh, were disrespected and dismissed. Um, and we have readiness issues. We have recruitment challenges. These are heroes that volunteered to serve their country. Uh, they ought to be brought back with full rank, back pay, and an apology from the Secretary of Defense. Several Republican lawmakers introduced a bill to do just that. Senator Joni Ernst, an Army reservist and Iraq War veteran, says the military needs experienced soldiers, especially since all of the branches failed to meet recruitment goals last Year. It is important to offer that back to those former members of the Army, see if they would be willing to come in. It would be good to have those that have solid experience back in our military and serving if that's what they so choose. But Democratic Senator Mark Warner, Intelligence Committee Chair, tells EWTN the measure would damage military authority. Notion that we're going to retroactively undermine what in effect was the chain of command would uh, raise problems. Let me look at it first. And the Pentagon isn't on board either, saying in a statement, quote, DOD is not currently pursuing back pay to service members who were dismissed for refusing to take the COVID vaccination. At the time that those orders were refused, it was a lawful order. The defense policy bill recently passed by Congress only requires the Defense Department to inform those discharged service members about the process to follow for reinstatement. It would also grant requests to correct their personnel files, allowing them to qualify for full retirement benefits. Republicans say they will continue to fight. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including heading to the polls while the international community is keeping a close watch on elections in a West African nation. And analysis of the Red Sea attacks by the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. According to a new report, the leader of a church in China has been arrested. The man is an elder in a so-called house church, an informal place of worship not recognized by the communist government. A U.S.-based Christian rights group says this is part of a larger crackdown. The elder's family, including his six-year-old daughter, are pleading for his release. Well, as we reported earlier, the defense secretary made a surprise visit to a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier stationed off the coast of Israel. Lloyd Austin thanked the nearly 4,000 sailors on the USS Gerald Ford for giving up their holidays to continue their mission of monitoring the war between Israel and Hamas. The other U.S. aircraft carrier in the region, the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, is patrolling the mouth of the Red Sea. This after many commercial vessels 
vessels have come under attack from Iran-backed Houthi rebels. They say the strikes will continue until Israel stops its bombardment of Gaza. And we turn now to Simone Leiden, senior fellow at the Strauss Center and former deputy assistant secretary of defense for Middle East policy. Simone, great to be with you today. Uh, a lot to discuss, but first, let's talk about the Red Sea and why it's so important. Uh, the Red Sea is one of the major shipping routes um, that container ships use globally. So in terms of global trade, um, that's one of the main thoroughfares that is used. And uh, the Houthi rebels, they have said uh, that they have the capability to turn the Red Sea into a graveyard and they will not stop what they call their military operations, despite the launch of Operation Prosperity Guardian. That said, what do they have to gain by doing all this? And what do you think their end game is? Well, um, I think it's important to take a step back and, uh, and recognize that the Houthis, the Iranian-backed Houthis, are actually just one branch of the big kind of malign Iranian tree, which, which Hamas is another branch, Hezbollah is another branch. This is all, this is all being directed by Iran. So uh, I know a lot of people are looking at this like they're all separate uh, issues, but it's actually, um, we're in the middle of one big escalating regional conflict. So it's, I think it's important to note that. And I think that context helps to understand why the Houthis are doing this right now. Yeah, really significant point right there. Um, it is reported that more than 100 container ships have been rerouted due to the attacks uh, by the Houthis specifically. Can you talk to us about how this is possibly impacting global trade and maybe the supply chain? Absolutely. Um, in fact, um, today uh, it's been announced that, in essence, all major uh, container lines have abandoned the region, even after the announcement of Prosperity Guardian. So we're talking about, you know, all manner of global trade. Obviously, the Baba Mandeb, the, the straight, um, uh, you know, the, the Red Sea overall is where a lot of uh, the kind of global energy trade, like oil um, that's used, again, across the globe, uh, transits. So um, any possible good that you can imagine that would be on a container ship crosses the Red Sea and the Babo Mendeb in particular. So um, in terms of snarling global trade, yes, it is today massively snarled. And it's going to get worse and worse. When you hear the major Greek shipping companies announce, as they have today, that they are no longer transiting the Red Sea, that is highly significant. Um, that is a highly significant um, um, development, and I think that we will be seeing um, will be seeing the second and third order effects of this uh, very shortly. Very shortly. Yeah, and a big concern, I'm sure, for the global economy and possibly inflation. We have about a minute or so left, Simone. But where do you see this all going, and what could be next? Well. Um, I think one of the things that's incredibly significant about this moment is how weak the United States military looks. And it, it, it pains me to say this, but um, even with the 
even with the, announce, uh, the announcement of Operation Prosperity Guardian and the increased number of ships um, that are supposed to be protecting, um, these are U.S. Navy ships and coalition Navy ships that are supposed to be protecting um, these big kind of container ships. Nothing has changed. In fact, it's clear that these big container ship companies don't believe that the U.S. military and its coalition partners are going to protect them. Um, that is significant and I think calls for um, a, a change in policy that the U.S., um, I believe, should have uh, should have done many, many months, if not years ago, um, and actually uh, imposing costs on the Houthis and indeed on all of the Iranian proxies that are causing such problems in the region um, and will continue to do so at great cost and expense to everybody else um, in both uh, blood and treasure. Well, Simone, thank you so much for weighing in. We really appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you very much. All voters are headed to the polls today in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Around 44 million people, or roughly half of the population, are expected to cast a ballot. Officials say voting will be extended amid widespread problems. There are reports of delays of up to seven hours just to cast a ballot. There are also worries about more than one million citizens who were unable to register to vote because of the deadly conflict in the eastern part of the West African nation. The international community is watching the vote in part because of Congo's natural mineral resources, which are crucial to the global economy. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, Bahambug, who is the lucky winner of this year's Ebenezer Award. Stay tuned, we'll tell you. Plus, happiness and cheer. Hear what makes Christmas so special for those in the nation's capital. California Governor Gavin Newsom is drawing criticism for canceling the state's annual Christmas tree lighting festival. In addition, he also chose to skip a menorah lighting ceremony. The Democrat closed the nearly 100-year-old traditional Christmas tree lighting to the public and instead held a virtual event for his family and select guests. The move drew the notice of a law firm specializing in religious liberty cases. And this week, Beckett said Governor Newsom had won its Ebenezer Award for being the biggest Scrooge during the holidays. Humbug, huh? Well, locals and visitors shared some of their favorite Christmas memories with us last night while visiting the National Christmas Tree in Washington, D.C. Give a listen. So my favorite Christmas memory is Christmas Eve with my family. We always um, just had our opened our first present, which was always pajamas, and then read the Christmas story and sang Christmas songs before heading off to bed. And I've loved it every. This is my favorite thing I still do. My favorite Christmas memory is one that I'm making right now, visiting from England. Visiting from England. I am. Who, who are you visiting? My family, my son, his beautiful wife, and my two of my beautiful granddaughters. Those are wonderful Christmas memories right there, and we hope that they make many, many more this year. Merry Christmas to them. Well, meanwhile, at the Vatican, Pope Francis held his final general audience before Christmas, and he says that the nativity scene teaches us simplicity and joy. Una caratteristica del presepe nasce come scuola di sobrietà. 
At his weekly talk at the Vatican, the Holy Father focused on the image of the crush. He specifically reflected on the first nativity scene from St. Francis of Assisi 800 years ago. The Holy Father explained the scene is like a living gospel and a place of encounter where we bring to Jesus the expectations and worries of life, just as the shepherds of Bethlehem did. We thank you for watching tonight. And remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook X and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. We leave you tonight with a look at the newly unveiled Christmas lights in Seoul, South Korea. Good night and God bless.